Good evening. So I want to um, start with a quote that I found that isn't maybe, well, we can decide together if it's directly related to what I'm going to talk about, um, but it's more related to a story that um, I told Bonnie that I'd try to get into the talk this morning. So first, the, the quote that I found, um, this is Robin Wall. Kimmerer, who wrote the book Braiding Sweetgrass, an Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. It's a beautiful book. She's a professor of environmental and forest biology and director of Native Peoples and Environment at the State University of New York. So she says, in the Western tradition, there is a recognized hierarchy of beings with, of course, the human being on top. The pinnacle of evolution, the darling of creation, and the plants at the bottom. But in native ways of knowing, human people are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. We, see, we say that humans have the least experience with how to live, and thus the most to learn. We must look to our teachers among the other species for guidance. Their wisdom is, a, is apparent in the way that they live. They teach us by example. They've been on the earth far longer than we have been and have had time to figure things out. So I loved, came across that today and I just love it in terms of what we're doing here and the time we're spending uh, connecting with nature internally and externally. And then the story, uh, this morning we were driving on the cart from the teacher's village up the hill, and um, it was a, a little misty and the sides of the cart were kind of fogged over, and we passed something on the side, and I think one of us said, oh, look, it's the turkeys. And then I think, Syra, you said, that's a peacock. <laughs> and it reminded, and it was, it was a peacock. There's a peacock on the land. Uh, have, have you seen it? Some of you have seen it. Um, so that's a new addition to the Spirit Rock family, apparently. And over the pandemic, well, a few things happened over the pandemic. You know, the people who have been working here and living here, um, well, I'd, I think majority left the land. Um, I'm not positive of how many people actually stayed to live on the land, but those who were working here were no longer working here. They were remote. And so what, uh, what I was hearing were these reports of all the animals kind of coming in and uh, taking over, in a sense, Taking back, <laughs> thanks, Bonnie, and um, and along with the, our our usual um, creature friends was this peacock that seemed to be pretty lost. It um, 
probably was somebody's pet on someone's yard or something like that and somehow made its way here. And we've always had a healthy population of turkey here on the land. And they kind of adopted, apparently, this this peacock and that they've been hanging out and living together um, through this pandemic up till now. And so I just, we experienced that this morning and all said, oh, Bonnie said, you've got to teach that. (laughs) That's Dharma. And uh, and then reading this this quote of uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, yeah, we learn so much when we pay attention to all the creatures and little beings and the natural world around us. There's so many teachings that go without words that we can take in here and elsewhere. So the Buddha awoke in nature, and he lived his life as a monastic, sleeping under the stars. He did his meditations at the foot of trees. So he was uh, greatly inspired by the natural world because he was in it. And he had his greatest insights uh, by... Uh, investigating the natural world externally as well as the natural world internally. And among the many things that he came to know, he discovered um, through his contemplation and clear seeing that there are these three truths of existence that need to be understood in order for us to awake. And so we've been teaching these every night, the truth of dukkha, of suffering. Bonnie gave her talk on impermanence last night. So tonight I will um, complete the three with a talk on anatta. So anatta, A-N-A-T-T-A, anatta, It's translated as not-self. And this is a really, um, or or commonly a confusing uh, teaching or concept, especially uh, for uh, practitioners who are new to the practice. It becomes very confusing when we don't fully understand Uh, We hear this not-self, we hear no-self. Okay, well, what does that mean? Am I going to lose my personality? Am I going to disappear at some point in this process? Am I not actually here? Is that the belief of this tradition? If any of that is true, you know, how am I supposed to be in a relationship or hold a job? Or, you know, what does this all mean? no self, not self. So it gets kind of confusing. Uh, It becomes rabbit hole thinking. We just kind of keep spiraling down with it. And the Buddha knew that, and I'll get to that. This type of understanding is actually also very much out of alignment with the laws of karma, which is 
um, fundamental to the teachings of Buddhism. And so uh, I remember early on being very confused by this concept. You know, if there's karma, this, this cause and effect that my actions, my speech, my, my thoughts, that they all produce um, an outcome. There's, there's karma that's produced by all of that. And if there's no self, then who is producing that karma? And who is the heir to that karma? I mean, this is directly from these teachings. So I just remember being very confused by that. This idea of there not being a self can also lead to this idea that um, we're meant to um, transcend the body or transcend our form in some way that at some point we just leave all this stuff that um, hurts and doesn't feel good. Um, uh, we leave our, our personalities behind and become something else, almost like maybe God-like. And this, is, this isn't what the Buddha taught either. So in fact, the Buddha tried that. So before the Buddha was a Buddha, um, he, he lived his life as a monastic in a different way. And he tried many, many different methods that were popular at the time and in the location where he was um, to become enlightened. He, he wanted to be free. And so he uh, did starving practices where um, he would deny the body food uh, he would, uh, there was a practice uh, of laying on a bed of nails, kind of this uh, uh, denial of the body, to transcend the body. So just really extreme practices. Uh, but that's not how he awoke. In fact, at some point he realized, this isn't working and I'm probably going to die because I'm not taking care of myself. And he was close to it. He was really close to death when he realized this isn't working. And before that, before he left to be a monastic, he was a prince. He was a prince that was very, very sheltered by his father because there was, um, uh, I, I guess, a, a, someone, a holy man came and saw the future of this prince saying uh, that he's either going to be a great leader and a monastic, or he'll be a king and take over your kingdom. So, of course, you can imagine what the king wanted for his son, and he um, protected him, or he thought he was protecting him by creating these be- building these beautiful palaces for him. He had everything he could possibly want. They kept away um, old people and sick people from him, so he, he really had no grasp on reality until he got curious, um, as you know, young people do, and left the kingdom to see what was real. And he came into contact with that and saw uh, old age, sickness, and death for the first time. And it was so 
startling. He didn't know that was part of reality. It was so startling that it um, changed the trajectory of his life completely. And he left his kingdom and everything and um, took on monastic robes and started his, his own uh, life as a holy person. So what he did find, though, through those extremes was the middle way. So the practice of Buddhism is often referred to as the middle path. So it's um, in between this idea of uh, life being about pleasure and all just filling it with as much pleasure as possible and that that will lead to ultimate happiness, which we all know there's never an end to that craving for more pleasant. It never lasts. It doesn't, um, it never fills us up if that's all that we're doing. Or, uh, it's also not this, uh, denial of, um, all things pleasant, you know, uh, I guess, uh, the way that he was living uh, as as a monastic where he was starving himself and, and trying to transcend the body, that there would be something beyond that, uh, was not the way either. So he found this middle way of, of healing and health, of, um, well, I guess... He was able to um, heal himself and come into contact with what was real, the true nature of his own body, his mind, uh, and find something else. And so we are all the benefiters of, of what he found. So this is the middle way. So when he uh, was the Buddha and he was asked, and he was asked many times if there is a self or a soul, that was one of the, the ways it was put at that time, or if there was no self, he'd either respond vaguely or not directly answer the question or not respond at all. He would just ignore the question and not have any answer. And I find that, I think that's really interesting so he didn't actually um, entertain that question. Is there a self or is there no self? And so the scholar and monk, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he makes a comment on this in his book, Selves and Not Selves. He says, uh, once when the Buddha's monks came to see him and asked him uh, a list of ten questions, the major philosophical questions of the time, some of the questions concerned the nature of the world, where it was, whether it was eternal or not, finite or not. Others concerned the nature and existence of the self. The Buddha refused to answer any of them. And he explained that the reason for his refusal was he said, it was as if a man had been shot by an arrow and was taken to a doctor. And before the doctor could take out the arrow, the man would insist that he find out first who shot the arrow, who had made the arrow, what was the arrow made of, 
what kind of wood, what kind of feathers. As the Buddha said, if the doctor tried to answer all the questions, the man would first die. The first order of business would be to take out the arrow. If the person still wanted to know the answers to those questions, he could ask afterwards. He's pointing to here that to ask, is there a self or no self, wanting a definitive answer is just not the right question. It's not the right question. So the Buddha answered a lot of questions, though, in his time. And they were all uh, related to whether or not, um, or he decided to answer the questions that would lead to freedom. That was what he was interested in. There's a story of him walking along in a forest with his monks, and he reaches down and he picks up a bunch of leaves, and he asks the monks, "How are there more leaves in my hand or more leaves on the forest floor? And of course they all say, there's more leaves on the forest floor. And he says um, something along the lines of, Uh, that his knowledge of the world and how it works is as vast as the leaves on the forest floor. But his teachings that he's offering is uh, similar to the amount of leaves in his hand. That he's only interested in uh, teaching and offering these practices and this knowledge that will lead to freedom and happiness That's what he cared about, was that we were able to find true happiness. And the rest of it was extra. It was all all just details after that. And so coming back to this question of, is there self, is there no self, he's saying, it doesn't really matter. It's not the right question in terms of your awakening. So Tanisaro Bhikkhu, again, Uh, He has a really helpful um, uh, idea about this and proposes that the question that the teaching of anatta is answering is that when is the perception of self a skillful action that leads to long-term welfare and happiness? And when is the perception of not-self a skillful action that leads to long-term welfare and happiness? And I really appreciate this this idea that anatta is pointing to the need for a sense of self sometimes and also the need to understand what is not self. I think it's Jack Kornfield. This gets used a lot, so I'm not sure who originated it, but I think Jack Kornfield uh, is the one... uh, who started by saying, um, oh, what was it? In order to let go of ourself, first we have to have a healthy sense of self, something like that. In order to let go of self, we have to have a healthy sense of self. And I think that's so true here. We're doing that kind of work here often. A lot of preliminary work here in the practice is developing this healthy sense of self. A lot of you have been experiencing that on this retreat. 
coming in contact with parts of yourself that require healing and care. Getting in touch with maybe old wounds and some new ones. Really learning how to uh, accept all parts of yourself without pushing them away into that aversion or wanting something different, wanting to be different in that unhealthy kind of way. So a lot of the work we do do here uh, initially is this healing work. It is this uh, development of a healthy self. That's important to this process of awakening. It's, it's not separate. It's not like, uh, you know, some people do that and then the rest are all waking up. Everyone needs to do this healthy self work. And even those of us who have been on this path for some time, we find that uh, as we progress in our understanding, we come into contact with old wounds, old parts of ourselves that we think, man, didn't I do this already? Didn't I heal this already? I spent a lot of time in therapy on this very thought, and here it is popping up in my meditation. I can't believe it. And then we have to go back into that acceptance and healing and tenderness towards who we are. This is all part of this path, this healthy sense of self. We need a healthy sense of self uh, to, to know who we are, where we are, that, that in a sense we are separate from each other. This helps us have healthy boundaries. It also helps us have healthy connections with each other on a psychological level. Yeah. We can lose ourselves to somebody else in a really unhealthy way when we don't have that healthy sense of self. So then there's this not-self. So I'm not saying no-self. That's actually not the translation of anatta. The translation of anatta is no-self. So the Buddha um, not only was answering a different set of questions of whether there's a self or no-self, but he he also, uh, the way that he did teach it, was um, directly pointing out what is... Uh, not self. So it's not no self, it's not self. What's not self? So what's not self is that we are not just one thing. When we bring our attention inward, we notice that. When we bring attention to the elements and know the elements within our body and our experience, we get to know this really quickly. We get to see just all the different workings within us, even just on a physical level, just in the body. And then come in the thoughts and the emotions and perception and Vedana, that feeling of this is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. All of this is happening all the time. Our consciousness all of this happening all the time. And you can't point to one thing and say, that's me, that's who I am. We're so many things all working together. 
many, many different parts. So this is the part of the understanding of not-self. What we are not is one thing, this one solid self. We are not just one solid self. Now, it's helpful for me to be able to say, I am Kate, and know that that's true, and that all of this that's happening is under this umbrella of Kate. You know, psychologically, that's really important. We don't want to lose track of that. But as a spiritual, uh, on a spiritual level and development on our spiritual path, it's important that I know that what I'm calling Kate is not one thing. And yet, that's what the mind wants to do. It wants to solidify around something. It wants so desperately to identify around something. And so we do that. We cling on to some part of ourself and say, well, this is me. And in doing so, we are kind of denying the fullness of who we really are, which is much more vast and complex. And not only do we do it to ourselves, this, there's a phrase for it called eye-making, this eye-making where we just solidify around an idea. I am this. This is mine, my making. But we also do they making. We do it to each other. So we, we can contract around an idea of, oh, that person is like this. Simplifying them just in a mind moment. Taking away their complexity and what their trueness is. And we can see them in this very narrow way, this they-making. And in that, we create separation. This is where the dukkha is, this separation within ourself. When we separate ourself from our fullness, and when we do it to other people, this separation of the fullness of another, that's so painful. It's so painful. So this is where that um, other truth of existence, dukkha, is related here. I remember um, for a long time in my early practice working with this, the contractions of identity. And I remember realizing that one of the major places I was contracting around was this idea that um, I was a very accommodating person, that I was easygoing and I was really proud of that. There was conceit and pride around this identity, that that was who I was. I was that easygoing person, easy to be around, easy to be friends with, could be friends with anyone, be anywhere, do anything. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. No problem. 
And then eventually finding, of course, that there was such a rub in that. I was so um, identified as that, that when it came to needing to advocate for myself, needing, needing something from somebody that would be maybe inconvenient for them or hard for them, it was so hard for me to do. And so then because I was so... Um, contracted around this idea of this is who I am, I couldn't flow into what I was really needing and who I actually was in a particular moment, which was maybe not accommodating. And then, of course, all that comes with that, the fear of rejection, the fear of not being liked or being seen in some way. It was such a trip. And it still comes up. You know, it's one of these old habits that comes in. Um, but it's something that through this practice I worked with a lot. How do I let go of this idea of myself that I'm supposed to be this one thing? How do I come into more of this fluid being with who I actually am in any one moment, which sometimes is accommodating and I can, you know, be chill with something. And then the next minute, I'm not. And how, you know, how that's okay. How full that allows me to be as a human being. Another one that I had to work with was anger. This, this um, fear around being seen as angry it wasn't even the fear of having anger so much as being recognized as, as having anger, which of course is a human emotion and something that we all experience. But somewhere along the line, I got the messaging that that wasn't okay. And it certainly wasn't okay to show. And so having to work through that in my, in my own self of acceptance, so kind of coming into that healthy uh, relationship with a healthy self and then letting go of the story of you can't be angry. You can't let people see your anger. And I, and in doing that, it's not like I walk around angry all the time. It's just that sometimes I get really angry and sometimes I show it, you know, and how appropriate that, that can be. You know, I, I bring in my sila with that as well. I don't want to cause harm. But sometimes it's anger, the energy of anger that's actually needed to move something forward. Sometimes it's the allowing to let it burn through and be experienced that's actually being needed to feel whole, to be a full human being. This not-self isn't saying... It's not denying you of yourself. It's coming into a fuller self, a fuller being without the attachment, without that clinging. Without that clinging, uh, it's pointing to something that is full and empty at the same time, empty of clinging, full of everything. This is not self, anatta.
the other way that um, I'm sure you've all experienced uh, this at some point is not just through the body and through emotions, but our perception uh, through Vedana, through our likes and our dislikes, and how quickly we do the my-making and I-making. And so even just here on this retreat, how many times has it come up that something was unpleasant and whoop, it becomes personal? Even if, you know, your your wisdom self, your the, the, the part of you that knows this is not really about me, it's still... Whoop, it just feels so personal. And the agitation that comes with that once it becomes personal. We can surprisingly be with a lot of unpleasant and be with just the unpleasant. That There's a lot about being human that is unpleasant. And we don't have to suffer from that. It's when it becomes personal that we suffer. When we solidify, oh, I'm not getting what I want. Oh, that person's not doing that right. Oh, you know, it's too hot. It's too cold. These kinds of things. You know, this is where we start on retreat. We start to learn about our preferences and our um, perception of what is pleasant, what is not pleasant. And how are we relating to it? How are we I-making and my-making? How do we then let go and learn to be with, oh, this is just unpleasant. Actually, it's okay. This is actually okay. Of course, when it's not okay, then we need to use something else. We need to use our wisdom and take some kind of action. So there's that truth too. But a lot of what we experience here on retreat is probably okay. We get to just see what does the mind do with it? How quickly does it solidify around this is all about me? This is really personal. This making personal uh, and this idea of solidifying with somebody else, I find it incredibly hard as a parent. You know, I'm watching my son grow up. He's almost six now. And not even in negative ways, but I can see how, you know, he'll learn to draw. He's starting to, he loves to draw and he's starting to make pictures that I recognize what, who the characters are and what's going on in the picture And what do we all say? Maybe he'll be an artist someday. (laughs) You know, we just kind of solidify about this idea. And I can see the whole thing play out in my mind. Yes, he's going to be an artist. And I can see it, you know, and I just completely create who he is, you know. Or he likes to storytell. And so it's, oh, he's going to be a writer, or he likes to, to climb on the playground. Oh, he's going to be adventurous. You know, I don't know. It just goes on and on and on. And I just watch my mind and how quickly it wants to solidify who he is. It's really difficult. We do it to ourselves. We do it to others. 
especially the ones we love, the ones closest to us. So the other part of this not-self is that we are uh, not a permanent self. There's nothing about us that isn't just constantly changing. So we're many different things. We're not one thing. And we're always changing. We're not, there's nothing a part of us that is permanent. Not-self. So Bonnie gave this beautiful talk last night um, on on impermanence. And the Buddha, when he was uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree and seeing clearer uh, than ever into the, the nature of how existence internally and externally really was, he first recognized the impermanence of all the nature around him and saw that this was uh, one of the characteristics of life, that everything is impermanent it's, and that it's always changing. And then as he took that knowledge and directed it inward, he saw it within himself. He saw that that ever-changing nature externally was also being experienced in his nature internally. And so we've been doing that here through the four elements practice, seeing how uh, air is in constant motion. We see that in our breath, just that one function within us, so constant, you know, constantly changing. Every time we breathe in, we just breathed in something that made us completely different from the breath before. It's not the same breath. We actually, we physically brought something into our body that wasn't there before. That's incredible. We are physically changing on, on, in such a constant um, in such a constant way that our brains can't even keep track of it. It's just too, it's too much. And so we can start to track some of it, though, and see into this nature and be wowed by it. It's just amazing when, we, when we're ready to tap into it and follow it and just see the, the speediness of change. And then we start to feel less solid, we start to feel uh, this not-self, anatta. There's something, it's not that we disappear, but how we are experiencing ourselves can, can really shift and change. And this isn't new knowledge to us. You know, when we are young we learn about birth and death uh, at a very young age just through what we learn about the changing of seasons. We are learning that uh, everything on the earth is going through this constant change of 
birthing in the spring and then living through the summer and then beginning to fall apart in the autumn and then that death of the winter. And so we have that contact at a very young age and so we're just bringing that knowledge more internally. But there's something, again, so personal about that. Seeing it out in nature is one thing, but then to realize it and be with it uh, internally, it can be scary. There can be fear that arises. We're not uh, totally ready maybe to accept the impermanent nature or it's just too much. You know, we're seeing it at such a, 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 such a big scale that we are changing so constantly that we can't track it. It can take time for this to really settle in and feel ease with this impermanence, this equanimity with impermanence. But that's what we are practicing. We're practicing to see that flux of life, that nothing is actually stable. Everything is moving. Everything is becoming and going and dying. And yet there can be this ease, this, uh, strangely enough, this groundedness, this sense of uh, maybe it's earth element, but something more solid that can know all of this. There's something in us that can relax. Even though there's all this flux of life happening, there's something that's knowing it all that's actually quite steady and at peace. That that is something available through this practice. So as we learn how to let go of our grasp of contracting around this not-self, around this sense of self, we first start by just seeing, seeing it for what it is, knowing when there's that I-making and my-making and them-making. We see it and feel the contraction, feel the suffering That's part of this practice. When the suffering comes up, it's not because we're doing something wrong or there's, you know, something else we should be doing. No, this is dukkha. When we contract around self, when we don't understand the truth of impermanence, this is suffering. We we need to feel that because we need to want to be released from that. That's what motivates us. It's inspiring when we can hold it in this way. That this is a path that's not just about, oh, there's suffering. This is the path that leads to the end of it. That's what we're doing. There is a way to not be in that place of contraction anymore. Just that alone, if we really understand that, um, brings, a, brings total fire to our practice. We know there's, you know, this is so valuable. There's maybe nothing more important 
than walking this path. So we recognize it, we feel that dukkha, and then we have to continue to question and to ask the right questions. So as it comes up, we might ask, is this in service to my happiness? Is this way that I'm contracting? Does it actually serving freedom? Is it serving awakening? Or has it just got me trapped in this cycle of I-making, my-making, they-making? Is this in service to my freedom? What would it be like to let go of this grasp? Even taking time to imagine what would you be like without the ways that you contract around yourself, your sense of self? Who would you be? What would that feel like? You can even right now take your hands and make a fist and feel the tension of that. You're carrying that all the time as you are contracting around this idea of self. And then you let go. And what does that feel like? What if we walked this earth like this instead of like this? So let's just sit for a moment. Thanks for your attention. So we'll move into the walking period. And then one of us, if not both of us, will be back for the chanting this evening. And it's our last evening together. So I hope uh, that we'll see many of you there. Come.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.